You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. This morning, we come to a, a solemn and a weighty text, an unsettling topic. As Christians, we welcome all and we affirm none in their sin because we're all sinners. And that includes leaders. That includes Christian leaders. And sometimes we find Christian leaders, gravely so, guilty of sin. Power often corrupts, as has been said, or at least it magnifies the corruption of sin that's already in us. And it's tragic on Capitol Hill. It's tragic in Hollywood. And it is all the more tragic in the church. And all of us have heard far too many stories of Christian leaders abusing power and failing egregiously in their calling as pastors. And especially so when not accountable to a plurality of peers, to a team of elders. And we've heard of leaders covering up the sins of guilty leaders, both in the Roman Catholic Church for years and in recent years, in Protestant denominations. It's not just a Catholic thing. It's Protestant as well. And this is a great evil when leaders in good standing do not subject leaders who have sinned to the just consequences of their failures. And Paul, here in verse 21, stands expressly against such covering up such showing of favoritism to leaders who have fallen. He gives Timothy a solemn charge here, not to be partial or to show such favoritism. Look at verse 21. This is a remarkable charge. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, check out those witnesses, God himself, the son, the angels, I charge you, Timothy, to keep these rules, which we'll see in verses 19 and 20, just a minute. Keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. The only other place where the Apostle Paul gives such a solemn charge is in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 2. Listen to that. You don't need to turn there. I'll read it to you. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 2. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. So alongside the solemn charge to pastors like Timothy to preach the word is another charge. Do nothing from partiality. Don't show favoritism to one of your own when they have sinned. The two main tasks of pastors, as we've seen in 1 Timothy, are feeding through teaching and leading through governing. And these two solemn charges move along the same lines. A solemn charge to preach the word. No matter what kind of pressure there is not to preach, preach the word, Timothy. And... A solemn charge, no matter what kind of pressure there is to ease up on leaders who have sinned, do not be partial to them. 
Do not show them favoritism. Be impartial and let sin have its just consequences, especially in a public role like pastor. So perhaps the reason the charge here in verse 21 is so heavy and so unsettling. It's an unsettling text. The reason it's so weighty is because of a good thing. We are prone to have great affection for our teachers. Those who have brought us to God, those who have explained his word, those who have taught us the Bible, we are prone and rightly so to have great affection for such men. And within the council of elders, it is a beautiful thing when the elders are good friends, when they love each other, when they have great affection for each other. This is a good thing. The danger is if such affection gives us the inability to then be impartial. So this morning, as we continue our study of 1 Timothy, we turn again to the leaders of the church. This is not the first time. It's called the office of elder. We've said several times that elder is pastor, is overseer in the New Testament, three different names for the same teaching office, the lead office in the church. We saw at the end of chapter two that the teaching of the church should be carried out not just by men in general, but specifically by the pastor teachers who feed and lead, who teach and have authority. Paul puts those two things together, the teachers and the governors. That's, that's 1 Timothy 2.12. And then immediately after that, Paul went right into the qualifications for the elders. It's chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. That was kind of like elders 101, the qualifications. And those qualifications are far more about character than they are about skill. However, there is one obvious skill that is included among the elder qualifications, and that is the, to be skillful in teaching. And so we learn that the elders are to be teachers. That is a key thing in the church that God means, because he gave us a book, he means for the leaders of the church to be the ones who teach and handle and love and go deep and know this book well. He wants the teachers of the book to be the ones who do the governing in the church. And now today we come to 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 25, and this is kind of, this is our second section on the leaders in the church. And this is kind of an elders 201. This is about how to honor the elders and how to hold them accountable and how to appoint them. That's basically the outline of the sermon here. Honoring them, holding them accountable, and how to appoint them. And apparently part of the problem in Ephesus, this is where Timothy is, Paul's writing this letter to Timothy, his junior associate in Ephesus. Part of the problem there, if not the whole problem in Ephesus, is that false teaching has arisen among the elders. Whether it's a single elder, whether it's multiple elders, we don't know that for sure. But Paul himself is intimately connected with the Ephesian church. He was part of establishing the Ephesian church. We learned about in Acts 19. And he stayed there for more than two years teaching. Paul knew names and faces and personal histories in Ephesus. And in Acts chapter 20, we see that Paul had prophesied to the elders in Ephesus that wolves would rise up from among their own number. Here, let me read you Paul's prophecy. This is Acts chapter 20, verses 29 to 30. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in from among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men twisting, teach, uh, teaching, speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. 
And now Timothy, young Timothy, has the task of being Paul's delegate and messenger to clean up the trouble that Paul had anticipated in Acts 20. And I draw great comfort from this in conflict. Paul wasn't caught off guard that something was going to happen in Ephesus. And God wasn't caught off guard that there would be major conflict in Ephesus. And there is grace too for this, even for problems among the leaders of a church, which is the most difficult kind of problems in a church when the elders are divided and torn. And there's grace too for this. We should take that comfort from this passage. Paul doesn't just leave it at, here's the qualifications, do it according to the qualifications, good luck figuring it out. He has a 201 for us. He has some principles to say to us regarding the honoring of elders, the discipline of elders, holding them accountable, and then the appointment of elders. That's what we'll look at in this passage. Number one, honor good elders. This is verses 17 and 18. Honor good elders. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Four, the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And the laborer deserves his wages. Now in the New Testament, this word elder means a couple different things. Sometimes it refers simply to old age. We saw that a couple weeks ago in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. It was just translated older man. And that's a good translation. Titus chapter 2, verse 2, we'll see it again, older man. But there's also another use for the word elder, and that's the office of elder also called pastor, also called overseer. And here in verse 17, Paul is referring to the office of elder, to be filled by spiritually mature men, not simply men of age. Remember we said a few weeks ago in chapter four, we talked about Timothy not letting them look down on him because of his youth, that it is not merely years that makes men and women wise. It is the spirit of God that makes us wise. And the addition of age is the opportunity for the spirit to make us wiser or for us to reject the spirit and be more foolish. Don't assume that age equals wisdom. The spirit of God is the one who produces wisdom. And age is an opportunity to grow deeper in the wisdom imparted by the spirit. And here Paul talks about those elders who rule well, not the ones who've ruled poorly. He'll get to them in a minute, right? The problems in Ephesus were among the elders. He's not yet talking about the ones who've ruled poorly. But he's talking about the elders who are in good standing, who are living and leading according to the requirements and expectations of Christian leadership. Now, that word rule may sound weird to our ears. It's the same word that's translated lead in other places or govern in other places or manage. And again, it's getting at this role of of elders being teachers and leaders, elders being the ones who preach and proclaim the word, and those to do the governing or exercise authority in the church. And such elders who lead well, Paul says, should be considered worthy of double honor. It's a really important phrase. The double honor is not just first the honor of respect that is fitting to those who are over us in service in the Lord. There's there's a, a single honor, which is the honor of respect that we give to leaders. And then secondarily, there's a, there's a double honor. And this is the honor of remuneration or 
financial payment and support. We use the word honoraria as a way of talking about an honor that is financial. So double honor is both the honor of respect and the honor of remuneration or payment. And pastors, Paul says, who are leading well, are to be considered worthy of such respect and worthy of financial report, financial support in some form. And I think it's really significant that he says they are to be considered worthy. It's important language, considered worthy, which means they may receive payment from the church or they may not. Paul doesn't require that all pastors be paid pastors or that all pastors be volunteer pastors, but he establishes a principle that is applicable to churches everywhere throughout all time. It's really helpful. He establishes here the justice of pastors being compensated for their work, but he does not force all pastors to make use of that right or not make use of that right. And so at our church and at many churches, perhaps most churches, we have both vocational pastors and non-vocational pastors, both paid pastors and volunteer pastors. And to establish this principle of justice, this is what Paul does in verse 18. He's going to quote now from two places to establish this principle. Look at that word for at the beginning of verse 18. We're saying because. Here's his grounding or support. The first quote then is from the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. You shall not muzzle an ox as it treads out the grain. Why say that? And if, if you're reading through Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 25, you find how just, <laughs> it's a statement just sitting on its own. <laughs> Why? Why the concern? What's God's concern for the oxen? Well, God's concern is for his people. He doesn't want his people to be cruel. He wants the kind of people who would not take advantage of the oxen to keep them from eating some of the grain as they tread it out and separate it from the chaff. And the point here is not simply about oxen. It's more than that. God does not want his people to be cruel, and especially to fellow humans. If this is the case for an ox, for an animal, how much more so are fellow humans, including pastors? We could think of pastors as fellow humans. Let's hope. The second, then, is a quote from Jesus. This is really interesting. You got Paul in an epistle of the New Testament quoting Jesus, and the quote is from Luke chapter 10, verse 7. The laborer deserves his wages. So not only does the Old Testament establish this principle implicitly, but Jesus himself explicitly applies it to Christian ministry. This is really helpful. This, this kind of puts the final nail in the coffin on Paul's case. Very brief, a powerful case. There is a fundamental justice in pastors receiving some kind of remuneration for the investments of their work. And also, this quotation here of Luke 10, 7 is a remarkable testimony to how early and how authoritative the gospels were in the life of the church. Paul wrote this letter, 1 Timothy, in about the mid-60s of the first century. And already at this point, the sayings of Jesus, 
precise language here, like Luke 10, 7, are circulating. The Gospels are already available, and they're functioning alongside the Old Testament as authoritative Christian scripture. There is here in this quotation a significant case and evidence for the authority of the New Testament for those who need to argue that and feel challenged by uh, detractors. So verse 18 then establishes that it is just, not just kind or merciful, for a church to doubly honor its pastors with respect and remuneration. Some pastors will receive that right and they will bless the church by giving their vocational lives to the needs and concerns of the church. And others, like the Apostle Paul himself, will forego that right at times and in various ways and they will bless the church by supporting themselves through labors other than pastoral ministry. This is a a double blessing to the church, both to have paid guys who will give their lives to it and to have the unpaid guys as well. And I think the the, the key word here, before we wrap up point number one here, the key word is labor at the end of of verse 17. That's the last part of verse 17. Look there again at 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. If all the elders who lead well are worthy of double honor, then what is this especially statement? He's already said, all the elders are well, double honor. Then he adds this especially. What's he doing? Does this mean that there's some elders who don't teach? Does it introduce a kind of distinction within the office of elder, as some traditions do, that distinguishes ruling elders from teaching elders? These, rule, these elders, you do the governing and ruling. These elders, you do the teaching. I don't believe it introduces two categories here. I don't see that in this text. And there is no other place in the New Testament that hints or teaches that. There are not two types of elders. Rather, all the elders, as we've seen, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, are to be skillful in teaching. All the elders are teachers. And in the New Testament, teachers are leaders, and leaders are teachers. And in Ephesians 4.11, Paul sticks the words together. He creates this hyphenated noun. He calls them the pastors and teachers. So all the elders teach. However, some elders do more work in preaching and teaching than others. It's just inevitable. That's how it's going to work out. But the especially here is not about gifting. The especially is about labor. The issue is labor. That's where he goes in verse 18. The issue is labor. The laborer deserves his wages. And this is a strong word for labor. It's a word for hard work. And the central labor of the elders, the most challenging and the most costly work that we do as elders is the work of preaching and teaching. That's the heart of the pastoral calling and office. All good elders are worthy of the double honor and especially those who labor, who work hard at the grunt work and the most important task of preaching and teaching. So all elders teach, but not all labor at the hardest work. Some labor at it more. Not because it comes easy, but because good Christian teaching is hard work. It's hard work in preparation, and it takes a life of work in preparing yourself well for it. So preaching and teaching are the heart of what it means for us as pastors and elders to labor together. We are called to do more than teaching, no doubt. 
We're called to leading, to overseeing, to governing. But the heart of our calling, the especially of the pastoral calling is teaching. That's the non-negotiable. We can limp along with inadequate admin. And in some ways we have. (laughs) And as a four-year-old church, we're talking about putting God's house in order and there's new things happening. You're hearing from the finance committee for the first time. The finance committee met this morning. We have a committee doing finances for the first time. We're, we're, we're catching up on those things. But I think we went about it the right way. The non-negotiable was teaching. We were willing to let those secondary things come along as we went, and we want to prioritize teaching. We dare not compromise the quality of our teaching. So that's number one, about honoring pastors. Number two, then, hold them accountable. This is verses 19 to 21. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. Do nothing from partiality. So verses 17 and 18 were about the elders who are leading well. And now... Because some of the pastors in Ephesus have not led well, Paul broaches this difficult subject of disciplining elders, disciplining pastors. There's a really important tension. I want you to to see and feel this tension in verses 19 to 21. On the one hand, there is the protecting of elders from unjust accusations. That's on the one hand. The other hand is holding elders accountable when they have sinned. Because the, past, the office of pastor and elder is a public position, much is at stake from both sides, both the protecting and the holding accountable. It's not a one-sided affair. It's a both and. Both principles are important. Paul wants to give this tension, wants us to feel the tension, wants us to learn to live in light of the tension. So on the one side, leaders are obvious targets of attack and perhaps especially so in our society, it increasingly loves to build up celebrities and take out leaders. And the devil is not new at this. He's, he's been trying to take out the opposing lieutenants as long as there's been a church. Elders do not deserve special protection, but they do deserve the same kind of protection that every individual should have, which is, Two or three witnesses. And Paul here is referencing an ancient principle in the Old Testament. This is Deuteronomy 19.15. I'll read it to you. Deuteronomy 19.15. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrong in connection with any offense that has been committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Elders deserve the same benefit of the doubt as every citizen and every member. And Timothy should not allow a suspect charge to sideline the ability of a pastor to meet the needs of his people. Don't give Satan that foothold and strategy. Leaders can be magnets for maniacal accusations or just personal axe grinding. The principle is, Don't let the devil take out pastors with false charges. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses, Paul says. 
And then on the other side, as we know, as we've already said, leaders are sinners as well as the congregants are. And sometimes leaders are gravely sinful. And in verse 21, Paul gives Timothy the solemn charge that we began with not to show partiality and to do nothing from favoritism and prejudice. So there's the tension. Verse 19, verses 20 and 21, the tension to protect leaders from unjust accusations and then to treat just accusations seriously and without partiality. And what Paul does here, this is really interesting, this is really important to know. What Paul does here is he does not lay out a specific step-by-step plan on how to proceed with disciplining pastors. He leaves that to the collective wisdom of the elders who are in good standing. Paul gives principles here for disciplining elders, not how-to steps that are going to be true in the first century Palestine and 21st century America. The church is too global, too broad, too different. God means to put a plurality of leaders in place who will carry out these principles in each situation, which has its complexities. So we need a team of wise leaders, not rule books that tell us how to do it. And when a charge arises, we proceed carefully and we we proceed with patience. Pluralities are often inefficient, but they are effective. While authoritarian structures where a single leader calls the shots often feel very efficient, but they are prone to error and prone to partiality. And when the elders who are the public servants in the church are caught in sin, their discipline and removal, if removal is warranted, needs to be public. That's verse 20. Look at verse 20. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. And I think this is probably another allusion to Deuteronomy 19. We saw verse 15 earlier, about two or three witnesses. Down in verse 20, Deuteronomy says, the rest shall hear and fear. You hear rest, hear fear, and never again commit any such evil among you. So Paul here now applies this to the other elders. The public rebuke of one elder will have a sobering effect on all of the elders. This is like when Paul called out Peter for his public error in Antioch. This is Galatians chapter two. Peter drew back from eating with the Gentiles. There's a public error. It communicated improperly about the gospel. And Paul called him out, he says, before them all. It was a public mistake by an apostle and it warranted a public rebuke, which Peter humbly received. So our leaders are not untouchable. And if not vigilant, they likewise could give in to sin. And the discipline of one leader is not only a means of grace for that man, but also for all the elders together at the same time. So verse 19 protects innocent elders from false charges. And verse 20 gives guilty elders greater discipline by making it public. And the role of the other elders is vital in the process either way which is just one more reason it's so vital for churches to have a parity, to have a team, to have a plurality of leaders, not a single pastor who calls the shots. Plurality provides accountability. It is the plurality of elders that is best suited to protect the pastor from unjust charges and to strive together to be impartial 
when one of their own has erred. Number three then, and finally, have patience appointing them. This is verses 22 to 25. Have patience appointing them. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to the judgment, and the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous. And even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Now, a few weeks ago, we are in chapter 4, verse 14. We got to this passage about the laying on of hands. About Paul and the elders laying on their hands, Timothy. And we talked about it very briefly there. And I told you, we'll come back to this and say a little bit more in chapter 5, verse 22. Because chapter 5, verse 22 here is the most normative instance of the laying on of hands in the church. Because it's about laying hands on elders. Here's a little background in the laying on of hands in the Bible. In the Old Testament, the laying on of hands is typically a negative image. You lay your hands on them to inflict harm on them. Or you lay hands on something to pass God's curse onto that person or that thing. Like in particular in the book of Leviticus, the priest would lay hands on the sacrifice to pass the guilt from the people in place of the, in place of the people to the animal. And so then the animal would receive uh, the guilt of the people. However, despite the negative emphasis typically of laying on of hands in the Old Testament, there are these two exceptions. This is in the, both are in the book of Numbers. And this is where the laying on of hands has a kind of ceremonial commissioning function. Numbers chapter 8, verse 10. God's people lay their hands on the priests to symbolize that you represent us. You as the priest represent us before God. The other instance then is Numbers chapter 27, verse 18, where Moses lays his hands on Joshua, who will be the new leader of God's people as Moses passes. So these are two kind of commissioning ceremonies where laying on of hands is commissioning someone into a special calling on behalf of the people. And when we turn to the New Testament, look at the laying on of hands, there is a noticeable shift in what's happening in the New Testament. First and foremost is that God himself is among us. He took flesh in the person of Jesus. And Jesus remarkably uses his hands to heal and to bless. He doesn't put his hands on to afflict or to pass God's curse. He puts his hands on people to heal them, to pass God's blessing. He takes children in his arms to bless them. And then Jesus, when he ascends to God's right hand, the church then becomes his hands in the book of Acts. And so the apostles are using their hands to heal like Jesus healed. But the new thing in the book of Acts is that they're also using their hands to bring the Holy Spirit to a new place in people as God's power extends out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the other most parts of the world, including Ephesus. So there's an instance of the apostles using the laying on of hands to bring the Holy Spirit to Samaria. That's Acts chapter 8. And then they do this in Ephesus, Acts chapter 19. But apart then from those mentions, there's two in the book of Acts that are also these kind of commissionings. In Acts chapter 6, seven helpers are appointed to help the apostles with the distribution for the widows, a seven. And they lay hands on them in Acts 6 to commission them formally into their new work. And the other then is the sending off of the first missionaries in Acts 13. Paul and Barnabas 
are set apart. They lay hands on them and they send them out as missionaries on this first missionary journey. And then we come to 1 Timothy. We saw chapter 4, and now here we're at chapter 5, 22, the most normative one. Already established leaders are formally laying their hands on someone here for a particular new ministry calling. And in doing so, they are both asking for God's blessing on the calling, and they're also putting their seal of approval on this person. They're going to share. These leaders, these formal leaders who are laying their hands on someone, they will share in some sense in the fruit or failures up to come in this person's ministry. So the two in Numbers, the two in Acts, and now these two in First Timothy establish this pattern for the church. It's both a commissioning to a calling and it's a commendation of the person among the people that he'll be serving. And what Paul stresses here, here's the payoff here in 1 Timothy 5.22. What he stresses is how the laying on of hands to ordain a man for the office of elder shares in his work. Not just for good, but also for ill. And so Paul charges Timothy and the elders in Ephesus to exercise patience in the process. Do not be hasty, he says, in the laying on of hands. Elders must not be new converts. We've already learned that from chapter 3, verse 6. But also here, we learned that elders must not be hastily appointed. It's not worth the risk and the damage to the church to not have vetted a man well. Then in verse 24, Paul continues this thought from 22. Look at verse 24. The sins of some people are conspicuous. In other words, they're easily seen, easily observed, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. This is the reason to be patient, to be careful in our first impressions of people, to remember, like 1 Corinthians 1 says, has not God chosen the weak and the foolish? The best leaders are often not the most impressive in the first impression. We need to give patience for time, for testing. Beware candidates who seem to come out of nowhere and seem too good to be true. Often, they're not true. And so Paul is calling the church. He's calling Timothy. He's calling us to have patience in our praying for, in our identifying, in our observing, and in our ordaining of leaders in the church. But even then, even after our patience, even after the wisdom we try to put into this process, we don't know for sure. That's verse 24 ends on this ominous note. The sins of others appear later. What about the others? How do we know if their sins appear later? That's what happened in Ephesus. Their sins appeared later. They're in all sorts of mess now. Paul doesn't end on verse 24. He ends with the encouraging note of verse 25. So also, good works are conspicuous. Good works will match the conspicuousness of some people's evil. And even those that are not conspicuous, seen, cannot remain hidden. We will not know for sure how every elder candidate will pan out. But God knows. He will not be caught off guard by it. And he cares for his son's church. 
He sent his own son to live and die and rise and ascend and pour out his spirit to establish his church. Jesus will protect his church. He says he'll build his church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against Jesus' church. No matter what kind of short-term setbacks we seem to suffer from the failure of leaders, Jesus is caring for his church. And in the moments when it feels the messiest and feels the darkest, God often sustains and upholds his church through so many hidden good works. Good works of the leaders, good works of the people. Some are conspicuous. Some are seen right away in the moment. Many are hidden. And in their perfect timing, God will bring them to light. They will not remain hidden. Our labors for good in the good times and in the messiest and darkest of conflict in the church will not be in vain. So we come to the table here, and you may think, we have conveniently left out verse 23. It does seem to come out of the blue. Some translations put it in parentheses, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and frequent ailments. Why say it here? Why why does Paul say this? In this passage on the honoring and holding accountable and pointing of elders, why mention Timothy having a little wine for his stomach? Let me give you two reasons. The first reason is Paul knows Timothy. He knows Timothy is carrying a great burden and anxiety as he tries to bring about peace in the Ephesian church where you have elders at odds with each other, elders having false teaching. Timothy's stomach is tied in knots over the anxiety of what's going on in Ephesus. And Paul adds this personal note, help him settle his stomach. But Paul knows this letter is not just for Timothy. It's being read publicly. There's a public dimension to everything in this letter. And so there's a second reason for this parenthesis. Drinking only water is apparently exactly what the false teachers who are ascetics wanted. Chapter 4, verse 3. They were forbidding certain kinds of food. And when you start forbidding stuff, alcohol is probably going to be on the top of the list of stuff you're forbidding. And so Paul aims to unsettle them with this note to Timothy, which clarifies what he means when he said, keep yourself pure. When Paul says at the end of verse 22, keep yourself pure, he doesn't mean, oh, Timothy, don't drink alcohol. That's not what he's saying in verse 22. And he clarifies here. When I say keep yourself pure, I'm not saying that's about alcohol. I'm saying it's about sharing in the sins of others. Paul wants Timothy to be settled. And he wants the false teachers to be unsettled. And a little wine will do both. So here at the table this morning, we pray that God would be pleased to impart to us by his spirit, his soul settling grace. The blood of Jesus is the greatest soul settling drink imaginable. Has your soul been settled by the blood that we sang about? In his blood, the just wrath against us of God has been settled. In his blood, we are justified. We're fully accepted by God. In his blood, we have been redeemed, bought back at great cost despite our sin. In his blood, we who were far off have now been brought near. And in his blood, the true and final peace has been made. 
no matter our present distress and how painful our conflict. So the pastors will come now, distribute the bread. This table is mainly for the members of City's Church, but if you're here with us today and you would say, I claim the blood of Christ. I claim the forgiveness. I claim the propitiation of God's wrath. I claim the redemption, the justification. I claim being brought near. I claim the peace of the cross. And we'd invite you to eat with us if Jesus is your Lord and Savior and treasure. We'll distribute the elements. The bread's all gluten-free. We'll retain and eat together. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.